that prickly part of myself and that part of myself who was a little rebel, who then didn't become an artist but did become a writer, and that other part that was still lodged within the story of the family, the story of the faith, and the story of the place. And in that conversation that I began to have between Jolene and Verna, I, I realized at some point that I was seeking a kind of peace and resolution within my own experience of life up to this point to kind of bring those two halves of myself into harmony. Hello and welcome to the Insight Podcast from the Zion Canyon Mesa, a residency center for the arts and humanities in Springdale, Utah, surrounded by Zion National Park. I'm your host, Logan Hebner. As Insight implies, in addition to interviewing writers, musicians, artists, and others, we'll also focus on our home here in southwest Utah. We'll dig into the backstories of controversial and critical issues we face here on the Colorado Plateau, the American West, and on from there. Today, Insight's old friend Teresa Jordan will talk with her old friend, the extraordinary novelist, essayist, and biographer Judith Freeman, their wide-ranging conversation centered on the notion of friendship. Teresa gives an excellent introduction to Judith's remarkable writing career, so I'll leave that to her. I just want to add that this is a very deep and complex conversation between two powerful creative women who have been friends for a very long time. They share backgrounds rooted firmly in the American West, Teresa growing up on a remote ranch in Wyoming, Judith as the second daughter in a Mormon family with eight children in Ogden, Utah. They used Judith's most recent book, MacArthur Park, as a touchstone. The central narrative finds two older women, once great friends, estranged for decades, gingerly reconsidering their friendship as they embark on a road trip. There's Verna, who left her Mormon family at a young age to become a successful writer, and Jolene, a famous Judy Chicago-styled performance artist. Part of their problematic history is they shared the same husband, Verna marrying him after Jolene's divorce. Adding to this, Verna Flake is a character from Judith's very first novel, Chinchilla Farm, written in 1989, who elbowed her way back into Judith's writing. Their road trip traverses, of course, the American West. As we get older, friendship stakes get so much higher, as not only do we share more intimately both good and bad, but we also see each other's flaws more clearly. Much remains unsaid, diplomatically balanced by the love and empathy of friendship. But events conspire, and those mutual intimacies get weaponized. Those core painful truths escape to cut each other to the bone, and bam, damage done and lifelong friendships shatter. What do we make of the carnage? Can they be repaired even if both people are game? How important are friendships to our lives? So this podcast is a remarkably open conversation between two creative women born of the American West talking about their decades-long friendship against the background of these fictional characters on a road trip across the American West, delicately renewing their own friendship very late in life. But it's also a freewheeling conversation that folds the act of writing and creation into this stew of writing as an act of personal excavation and the ineffable process of how our fictional character creations 
continually surprise, mirror, and mock us from the page. Judith, I am so delighted to be talking with you uh, for this podcast and just in life. Thank you, Teresa. We've been friends for so long. And to me, this is just a wonderful opportunity to have a conversation with a dear, dear friend. Well, I really want to talk about friendship today. And your most recent novel um, deals uh, is very much the story of a friendship. And that, um, Judith, I'm going to just give a little introductory material about you, if I may. Um, and Judith is the author of eight books, eight really significant books, uh, starting with her first collection of stories, which I think came out in 1988, and mm -hmm. um, several novels, including Red Water, which tells the story of the Mount Meadows Massacre through the eyes of three of John D. Lee's uh, 18 wives, um, a, a beautiful memoir, uh, The Latter Days, a really genre-breaking book about Raymond Chandler and his wife, Sissy, his much older wife, um, a nonfiction book that was the biography of a marriage and also in its way the biography of a place of Los Angeles. I want to talk today about your most recent novel, MacArthur Park, and also your first novel, Chinchilla Farm, because MacArthur Park um, picks up the story of Chinchilla Farm in a way 30 years later. And friendship play is a very strong theme in both of them. And these, as I said, this is a theme that we've we've so much through so much of your work, Judith, along with other themes of how we create a self of um, love and marriage, of authenticity, um, of trust. Um, so. Anyway, that's sort of some background. And we have been friends. I was, I was looking back on this, and we have been friends for about 30 years. And we met through our mutual editor at the time, Jerry Howard at Norton. I believe that, Ch that Chinchilla Farm had just come out. I was doing an anthology with Jerry of women writing about the West. And he said, I have this wonderful writer. You have to meet Judith Freeman. And we connected on the phone very immediately around, I think, writing, but certain things we had in common. We'd both come from very small places. You from a small town in Utah, myself from a ranch in Wyoming. Um, we both were dealing with... Um, um, trying to tell the story of that origin and how it shaped our lives going forward. There's no question that the West, uh, which has been uh, the ground for my writing, so much of my um, work comes out of that deep connection with the Western landscape. And of course, that's where so much of not only your writing, but your art has come from. And I think we felt that very early on, that strong connection, as well as our love of horses. We're both horse <laughs> women. 
<laughs> with and dogs. cats and dogs. <laughs> exactly. Um, but thank you for what you say about my work. It is true that I think that my subject in all of my eight books has really been the complexity of human relationships. Mm-hmm. It's The work is about many other things as well. Obviously, landscape and the great drama of the uh, landscape of the American West is reflected in the great drama of the stories that I've told about friendship, marriage, and family relationships. Those two subjects seem to be, um, you know, really at the heart of MacArthur Park. The story of friendship and marriage, the complexity of both of these primary relationships, but also a very, very long drive that two women friends who reconnect later in their lives make across Nevada and the Great Basin. And um, it's about 110 pages of a long, long drive with these two women, Jolene and Verna, talking about everything under the sun, or rather Jolene, who you just can't hardly shut up, uh, talking to Verna about her life as she faces a, a life crisis. So friendship is definitely one of the major themes that I really wanted to explore in this novel. And within friendship, and within any relationship, as you say, you know, the, the human uh, experience has been so central to all your work. There are those, that coming to acceptance and forgiveness, acceptance, understanding, and forgiveness. And, you know, I think forgiveness is such a loaded term, but understanding you know if we really understand someone um i think forgiveness ensues and if and one of the themes that over that you know one of the in particularly in macarthur park was coming to understand how hard it is to change and how friendship is really seeing who someone is you know verna Verna and and Jolene are very different people. You know, they were early childhood friends and then um, went in different directions and are very different in nature. And one thing that comes up a lot is that Verna is likable. She comes out of that Mormon culture where women are taught to be likable. And um, Jolene, who becomes... A, a very provocative, radical feminist body artist, among among other things, um, can be very mean. And how they come really to accept those particular facets of one another's personality and understand the constellation around that, that any one facet is only that a facet. Right. Um You know, I think that we rely on our friends for so many things, but certainly it's someone to talk to, and it's someone to depend on, 
and it's someone to enjoy. And in the case of Verna and Jolene, it's someone who can tolerate our eccentricities, mm-hmm. our difficulties, our um, confrontations, um, our conflicts. And I think we've all had friendships that have been destroyed by one thing or another. And these are great losses. Sometimes they're such valued friends and they're such important friendships. And we simply can't go the distance. We simply can't be generous enough or forgiving enough or tolerant enough or just simply quiet enough to endure these really difficult moments that come up. And in giving readings from MacArthur Park, I had people say, why did Verna put up with her? Why did she, uh, why did she take that kind of behavior when Jolene could be very prickly and difficult? And part of the answer is, I think, that both of these women are now in their mid-60s. And maybe they've lost a lot. And maybe they can't afford to lose any more. And maybe they understand that this is the time to exercise all the good qualities that they have to bring forth basically the love that they have for each other and see if it can surmount the jealousy and the envy (laughs) and the uh, other incredibly complex emotions that come out when they reunite after all these years. And we should say that they both have loved the same man in their lifetime. One of them is still with that man, and one of them left that man. And so this triangle figures in very strongly to their relationship. One of them has figured out how to accept, finally, that man's difference. He comes from a very different neural tribe. The other one is on the spectrum. Yeah, he's on the spectrum. Um, And that itself is a certain um, theme that I wanted to explore. The specialness of people who are different, very different than we are because of the way their brain is arranged Um, and how we can learn from them instead of seeing them as being uh, somehow less fully human or somehow incapacitated. And I think it's such a, a great, um, you know, looking at someone who is considered neuroatypical, that, that this is the way that person's brain works. And the truth is, to one degree or another, we're all neuro-precise or neuro-defined. I mean, each one of our brains works differently. And, and we are, as, uh, as Verna says, two or three times in the book. Um, what, what is the um, exact line? I, I am formed the way I am formed. Something. something yes, like yeah. That. Verna, Verna feels, mm-hmm. usually in relationships too, I think there's one stronger um, mm-hmm. person who can mm-hmm. dominate the relationship or seem to dominate the relationship. And Verna often says, I'm made as I was made. I'm made as I was made. Right. Yeah. And 
she's not made as Jolene is made. She's not mm-hmm. as aggressive, and, and she's not as confident, and she's certainly not as prickly. Um, yeah. But she comes to accept that she's made the way she's made. And for me, she's a wonderful narrator because she's come to understand the importance of listening. She says there are many people in the world who are talkers, who want to talk, but the true listener is rare. And so she's able on this long, long drive through Nevada and the Great Basin to be that listener. And one of the things she understands is that we all want to be seen. And in order to be understood, we have to be seen. And that this is what Jolene is asking of her, to take this drive in an effort that she might be seen by someone who understands her and has known her from childhood. You know, the the road trip is such a great um, experience on which to explore, you know, to explore these themes. These women are locked in a car with each other. And they, I mean, Verna, or Charlene is very ill. She is, she has a terminal disease. And um, Verna is certainly not going to abandon her. I mean, even if there are um, times of great, of, of, of difficult behavior. And so they have this extended hour after hour after hour being there with each other. There are silences. There's times that Jolene is asleep. There are times that they just have a comfortable silence together. But Jolene does talk a lot. Right. And so you have, and you know, road trips play, uh, you know, there, a road, there's a road trip in, uh, in Chinchilla Farm where Verna leaves. Uh, her, her first marriage has, has ended. She goes to Los Angeles and she and asks um, Jolene, who she hadn't been in touch with for many years, if she could stay for her while she gets her feet on the ground. So there's her road trip getting to Los Angeles. There's later lo- road trip to Mexico. And then here in this novel that picks up 30 years later, um, the road trip is a third of a third of the novel, roughly. And so that that time where you're together, um, where you can talk, how rare is that? Where you sort of, in, in that extended conversation as in a relationship over decades, you come close together and you draw apart. Talk about the road trip. <laughs> right. Well, you know, a road trip is kind of a, a, a classic idea, but we don't really, we have a lot of buddy road trips or buddy road trip movies or Kerouac Mm -hmm. on the road, but we don't have so many, you know, other than the tragic story of Thelma and Louise, which is a great movie, uh, we don't have many women setting off on road trips together. Mm -hmm. And it's true that that capsule of the car creates this very isolated environment um, where people have long conversations. As you and Hal have driven across the West, as my partner Tony and myself have driven across the West, it's uh, a wonderful way in terms of a literary device of providing a counterpoint 
to the interior and the exterior, the interior of the car, the interior of the humans, and this extraordinary exterior world of the American West. But I think we are so affected by the patterns of our childhood, the books we read, the um, experiences we had, obviously, that form us and never leave us. And for me, as a child growing up in northern Utah, um, in a family of eight kids, every summer we would go to visit my grandmother in Snowflake, Arizona, in the town that was named after my great-grandfather, who settled that town. And we would drive down Highway 89, past Bryce and Zion, and across the Kaibab Plateau, and down past the Grand Canyon, through Flagstaff to Snowflake. And the images from those trips, from the time, you know, I was born, being in a car with eight kids, you know, some on the, you know, spread out all over that car, singing with my family as we drove down to Snowflake. That experience of the movement through the American West, I think, has come into almost every book I've, I've written. Yes, those childhood experiences are so indelible and um, do form us. You know, and, and another theme of this book is Verna leaves her home and leaves her original Mormon culture, but she mm-hmm. never cuts her, her ties with it. it. It continues to be a part of who she is and to be held not without complexity, but with affection. And Jolene just does not want to be, even be known by that part of her biography at all until the end of her life when she does want to come home in a way. I found myself rereading MacArthur Park as as I just did, and it's a book that you can just come back to over and over. But I found myself um, pulling up, uh, let me just pull this up, pulling up a quotation that had meant quite a lot to me from a Midwestern writer who writes a great deal about um, place, uh, about nostalgia. And which is a word that comes up in this um, in in this book a lot. And let me just read this to you and ask you how it rings for you. It is the fashion just now to disparage nostalgia. Nostalgia, we believe, is a cheap emotion, but we forget what it means. In its Greek roots, it means literally the return to home. It came into currency as a medical word in 19th century Germany to describe the failure to thrive of the displaced persons, including my own ancestors, who had crowded into that country from the East. Nostalgia is the clinical term for homesickness, for the desire to be rooted in a place. This desire need not imply the impulse to turn back the clock, which of course we cannot do. It recognizes rather the truth if home is a place in time, that we cannot know who we are now unless we can remember where we have come from. That's fantastic. That's just, uh, I didn't know the origin of the word nostalgia. Um, And it often is thought of as something that's kind of a slightly negative thing, like we're longing for the past that we can never recover, so why bother? 
but that you would pull up that and that I pulled up a quote from Ursula Le Guin, um, which I want to read to you, and then we can keep talking about it. But Ursula, for me, when I think about this book, MacArthur Park, I know it was a homecoming. I know as I grow older, I come closer and closer to that homecoming. What she said was, true pilgrimage consists in coming home. True journey is return. And that journey mm -hmm. changes us. It makes us a person. Wow. Yes. So this, this idea of the true pilgrimage, which all of us are making in our life, we know that. We know we're searchers and seekers and we're lovers and we're complex people. But basically, we're on a pilgrimage in this life and we all know it, however we name it or configure it. And that, in, the, in that sense, that the true pilgrimage um, consists in coming home and that the journey is return. And I wanted Jolene, that complex person who has shunned her past, who's been living in Paris, who's become a world-famous performance artist, who really has no connections with her family left. And yet she asks at the end of her life for Verna to take her back to this place where they were raised, and she wants to make this drive because she wants to look at the West. And toward the very end of the book when they are exchanging letters and Jolene is back living in this town where she was born. Um, she writes Verna a letter and in it one of the things that she says is stay with the family if you can. And I think it's a realization that mm -hmm. I've come to that in my own complex relationship with my past, family, church, upbringing, patriarchy, the evolution of my own life, I came really to this feeling of um, perhaps beginning the return of my part of my journey in saying, stay with the family mm -hmm. if you can. And you know, I mean, we, I, I, we've mentioned how these themes go through all your books, but you know, look at the title of your first uh, collection of stories, Family <laughs> Attractions. Right. And, you know, Bill Kittredge, the, um, who ran the writing program at University of Montana for so long, and I remember him saying one time that, um, you know, writers write, each writer writes about one thing through their entire life. And what he meant by that, and, and I think the metaphor he used, he came from a ranch in Oregon, so he owned this metaphor, but was that you have a burr under your saddle. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think, you know, a, a writer is ahead of herself in what she knows writing in terms of what she's ready to actually live in her own life. I mean, sometimes I go back and I look at something I've written and I think, wow, you know, I'm still trying to... I knew that enough to write it, but I'm still trying to know it enough to live it. To live it. But, yeah. Right. And, yeah. And writing is such a, um, it's such a uh, gift because it allows us to really get in and, and 
and dig around in that material and, and write. You know, well, an, another Western writer who I adored, William Stafford, Billy Stafford, said something to the effect, I don't write uh, because I have something to say. I write in order to discover what I wouldn't have known to say if I hadn't tried to write about it. I think that's true. I think that, you know, the act of writing is an act of great excavation. And we could say, oh, well, we're excavating ourselves. We're excavating our own psyches and experience. But I, I hope and believe that we're doing it in service of a much larger idea. Mm-hmm. It is what is that connection that makes us all um, uh, feel and experience so many of the same emotions and challenges? And I'm a great fan of the Elena Ferrante um, Quartet, the Neapolitan Quartet. And those books, they are also about a story of two friends. Mm-hmm. And two women friends who know each other from childhood and it follows them throughout their lives. And they also share a love for the same man. But in writing about, um, in an essay, Elena Ferrante talks about um, the importance of telling stories with the bandages pulled off in order to probe the wounds and to find the source of the wounds. Not everyone does this. Not every writer, every novelist um, goes in that direction. But certainly with MacArthur Park, for me, this was the book, I think, in which I took a very deep dive mm-hmm. and pulled a lot of the bandages off. And I did probe some of my own wounds and struggles in the hope that it would be something that a reader could look at and say, ah, oh, yes, I've I felt the same thing. Um, And I think the story of these women friends um, is exceptional for the pain that comes out between them, the affection that comes out between them, the range of emotions that they experience on their long drive and their conversations and in the letters that they exchange later. And just a quick anecdote, a friend of mine separated from her husband. And she was so bereft for a year, especially of physical touch and of being close to someone. We took a trip together to Guatemala. There were four women friends. And the first night, she slept with one of her close friends. She said, I'm going to sleep with so-and-so tonight. She's going to allow me to sleep with her because it just... It's so wonderful to be next to another warm body in bed. And so on their long trip, Jolene and Verna, Jolene also climbs in bed with Verna and asks to be held during a particularly stressful moment. I tried to imagine two men doing the same thing. It was very hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. I tried to imagine two women being able to do the same thing and not have it seem like a loaded situation, that was something I could write. And I think it's, you know, I think it leads into this idea of the literary imagination, you know, and that your novels are to some degree autobiographical in that there are many parts of your own life, and yet they're also 
very much products of the of the literary imagination. They're not tied to autobiography. They're you know, if somebody reads your memoir, they will or 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 knows you as a friend, they will recognize parts that that come pretty straightforward out of your own life. And yet so many things do not. And as a writer, you know, on that trip to Guatemala, you had this experience, you saw this thing happen between two women, and it comes into a part of an unnecessary part, not a part that's fit in because it might be interesting, but a necessary part of the relation of where their relationship is, of their understanding of each other at that particular moment in time. Could you talk just a little bit about turning or using the facts of one's own life and using the literary imagination to come up with something that's very different than one's that, that one's own life? Just how that plays for you. Right. I think, you know, obviously the term is used a lot, but writers are magpies. We're constantly picking up little bits of everything. And I think, um, obviously, I'm a writer who brings a great deal of my own experience into my work. I always have. And I'm not shy about doing that. I'm not overly conscious about doing it. It's my material. I think... um, uh, drawing on my own life, and then, yes, it does become fashioned into story in this absolutely mysterious, extraordinary way, where uh, the fact of my life, the facts of my life, um, become embedded in this larger story. And I don't, I, I think it's true what someone said to me that. In fiction, often we reveal more about ourselves than we do in a memoir. And I think that's probably true of MacArthur Park, that I've taken a great deal of um, the story from my own life. So much so that at a reading, someone said, do you think it's autofiction? And I said, I have no idea what autofiction mm-hmm. is. I don't, I don't really understand that term. I've never thought about it much. And someone else in the audience said, oh, well, you know, I, I read uh, Valeria Lucelli's uh, book. What was that called? Uh, something Children. Fabulous book. But it's a long road trip. And she said someone said it was autofiction, and I thought it was because they were in a car all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, maybe you're... Your book is autofiction because so much of it t- also takes place in a car. It probably is autofiction, whatever that means. You, there are a lot of writers now, from um, Ben Lerner to I can think of others who are writing fiction that very easily could be mistaken for autobiography. Mm-hmm. But in this case, with MacArthur Park. Jolene is a fabricated character, and she gave me such riches. I've never had a relationship with anyone like Jolene. And so that great uh, fiction allowed me to imbue the story with an awfully lot of fact. And I just Mm -hmm. think it's a wonderful dance 
that a novelist does if you're writing about your own life like I am often of um, putting those two partners together and letting them start swirling around While emailing with Judith, we started a conversation about how or why Verna Flake, the central character from her very first novel from decades ago, found her way into MacArthur Park. Why reprise her? With Judith's permission, I'll read her response, which speaks to the complex relationship between fiction writers and the personalities that emerge in the writing. Quote, As for Verna Flake, the narrator of my first novel, Chinchilla Farm, it's fair to say she never left me. It's her voice I return to in MacArthur Park, which picks up the story of the Chinchilla Farm 30 years later. I never imagined a quote-unquote sequel to the Chinchilla Farm, and I was surprised a few years ago when I found Verna ready to continue her story, even more surprised that she would so nakedly have absorbed so many real events from my own life that had occurred since she last appeared. She has even written some of the same books I've written during that time, including The Long Embrace, my book on Raymond Chandler. She lives in my building, on my street, with my real neighbors. She takes the drive I took with friends through the Great Basin. And most importantly, she seems to have absorbed my feelings, my thoughts, concerning what was happening, what had happened, in my life and relationships during those years. I wonder if the voice of Verna hasn't ended up actually being the underground narrative force in all my work. In other words, the embodiment of how I have looked at the world in the five novels, the stories, even The Long Embrace, and my memoir, The Latter Days. She's perhaps the most naked version of the self I have represented in one way or another in all my work. That's one way of saying, Verna, c'est moi. Although in this book, MacArthur Park, as in no other before, I've also embedded myself deeply in another character, Verna's prickly friend, Jolene, no relation to the song, and by doing so moved over a bit to the dark side, the even more dangerous truth-telling side of my active little writerly brain. She's a destabilizer, maybe like the Jolene of the song, a mixed figure, dangerous and provocative, as one friend put it, a combative woman of the sort often punished in this society. I very much enjoyed writing her. You know, our, we did meet through this piece um, that you wrote for the anthology, The Stories That Shape Us, of women writing mm-hmm. about the West. And, I, and, and that was the story of your father reading um, Chinchilla Farm the, and, and being unhappy with the way that you had portrayed Mormon life in that. And it led to a long estrangement, and, but you did find a way to start talking with each other again. And in one letter you, you, you wrote to him, trying to explain how the literary, you know, what it was to write, what it was to write at all, what it was to write fiction. And there was a line I never forgot about that, how memory and imagination can become almost indistinguishable. And yeah. I, 
I think, you know, I see that at play. There was another thing out of our friendship, and I do love, you know, that our own friendship weaves through this conversation. But we were talking one time, I just started writing some short stories, and it was my entry into fiction. And the one thing that I was really struggling with was making um, dialogue believable. And I had done a lot of oral history. I'd done a lot of listening very, very carefully to the way that people speak. But you know, the way that people speak, if you transcribe it, and what dialogue is or to, in, that works in a novel are two very different things. And I said, I asked you, you know, how do you create dialogue? And you said something that has been really foundational for me in many aspects of writing, not just dialogue. But you said, I don't create dialogue so much as listen to it. And I feel that the, you know, the, the believability of your scenes, that you aren't creating them so much as watching them, you know, put, mm. putting, taking a, a piece here, a piece there, you know, create, finding a character beginning to emerge, certain thoughts of what you're reading and what, you know, come into it. And all of a sudden, I mean, I have that feeling that um, I'm entirely inside one of your scenes, that they are so real. That's wonderful to hear. I'm certainly entirely inside them when I'm uh, writing them. And it doesn't feel like pushing anything out. It doesn't feel like, yes, it's creating. I'm very aware of creating, but there's a flow. It's as though you've opened a spigot and it's flowing in and it all is coming from character and is coming from deep within character. When I started writing Red Water, which is set in the 19th century, and as you said, focuses on three of John D. Lee's wives who tell this story, um, people said to me, well, I, you know, I've tried to write a historical novel, but the language was so different. I couldn't figure out how to find that the way they spoke then. And um, I'm sure that's true, that there is a, you know, a lot of dissonance and difficulty in putting yourself back in a period. But the first thing I did was to begin reading the journals of John D. Lee, and then reading the journals of Emily, and then reading other journals from the time, and the language is there. And also the sense of character is there. And once I began to absorb that, then it seemed to me that the feelings that connect every single one of us in every single generation are always going to be available. And that if you can find the truth beneath that language about those feelings and experiences. Um, and there was also something else. Um, that book is told three different ways. Emma is in third person, Anne is in first person, and Rachel at the end is epistolary, a kind of diary form. And when you looked at diaries, you would see the first thing that the people in the 19th century in Utah did was to list the weather. And once you listed the weather, and then you listed a few chores, then you could begin to think about what else was happening during that day? And what were those people saying to each other? So there are lots of prompts and assists with trying to find, to enter into another period. And um, for MacArthur Park, 
Yes, it was listening very carefully to the voices of characters, some close to me, some created, that gave me, you know, the help that I needed. I've always been impressed with your, um, with you as a researcher, with Red Water and and with Raymond Chandler and with this book, that you get interested in a period of time and particular characters in that time. And you go, you go very deep in understanding it to the point that, that it becomes part of you. It is absorbed. So it comes back out in this authentic voice. But one of the, um, a world that you investigate in MacArthur Park, which I had, um, I knew so little about and, and did perplex me. Uh, what was the world of radical feminist art? And your character, Joe, you, you get to present that world to us and really um, struggle with and illuminate the themes of that movement, which, of course, continue. But could you just talk about why, um, how you came, you know, what that curiosity was on your part and what that journey was for you? I'm married to an artist who has uh, really enriched my life over the last 35 years. We've been married by bringing me into understanding how to look at art that is first so perplexing to me. And it wasn't that he was so interested in radical feminist body performance artists, but I was. I was as a movement, and I came across an artist named Carolee Schneeman, who in the 1970s began staging these performances, often nude, um, often with friends. They ranged um, uh, different kinds of performances. But I think women were really trying to reclaim their bodies at that point. Um, In the art world, they had also um, taken such a, a second place to male artists, some of were married to male artists, and, uh, like Lee Krasner to Jackson Pollock. They were overwhelmed by their husband's art. They were overwhelmed by an art establishment, galleries, museums, collectors, that were really just ignoring their work. And they staged remarkable performances that also really brought attention um, to the way that uh, art could be used to illuminate social situations. Um, for instance, Jolene stages a piece where she steals meat with a friend from a number of grocery stores during the first Gulf War, drives the freeways, throws the meat out on the freeway where it's run over and smashed as a, a kind of an analogy to what was happening to people during war. So these women were addressing everything from rape to war to feminism, and they were doing it in such a remarkably brave way. I wanted to celebrate those early feminist performance artists, a few of whom are still alive, Judy Chicago being one with the dinner party, a tamer version certainly of what Carolee Schneeman was doing. But... Um, To me, 
in this book, there are many, many themes. We've talked about friendship at length, and we've talked about marriage, art, especially feminist art, and the way these women demanded that they receive attention. Um, I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about homelessness and evictions because um, the couple in the book are being evicted. I wanted to write about ruthless landlords. I wanted to write about predatory capitalism. I wanted to write about war because Jolene's last performance piece is going to be about war. She knows it's futile to try and say something about it, but she's going to try anyway. Um, I wanted to write about the way the West has been used as a dumping ground for toxic material, for nuclear testing, for every kind of chemical and uh, biological testing, how great portions of the Utah desert and Nevada have been given over to these activities. Um, and so I jammed as much as I could into this book to make it a statement about so much that I really care about and I'm thinking about at the moment. You talked about the road trip as a place where, you know, as jo Jolene had a real desire to be seen. And, uh, and I think both friends did, a real desire to be seen in their totality through each other. And it, everything, you know, all these themes that you're talking about are themes that, that are very, I know, are very deep in you, very important to you in your, your sense of values. Themes that you want seen, that you want explored, that you want on the table. And that totality, you know, that, that beautiful quote from Ursula Le Guin of, you know, in coming home, that pilgrimage, that that's where you find your whole self. You find everything that's, that's been included along the way. And very early in MacArthur Park, there is a scene of when Jolene and uh, Verna are young. And Jo, they go to pick huckleberries at uh, Verna's aunt and uncle, I believe. And Jolene does something that really disgusts the aunt, who is a very important Aunt Marie, a very important person in, in Verna's life. And they're in the barn and uh, um, have a, a conversation that shows the difference of Jolene to to Verna's love of animals, understanding of horses. But then Jolene start, wants to light a cigarette in the barn, which you cannot do. I mean, a barn can literally explode with all that hay dust that's in the air. And um, um, Verna says, no, you can't do that. Jolene doesn't get why not. And Verna's saying again, no. And then Marie bursts into the scene. And she basically calls uh, Verna on all her stuff, calls her a little shit. And it's a very, very painful scene. And it really begins an estrangement between the two girls that doesn't start to resolve, you know, for many years when, when, when uh, Verna goes out to see Jolene in L.A. and then doesn't really resolve until clear the end of this this second novel MacArthur Park but so there's this and and she in that scene um in fact could I have you read that scene um 
Yeah, it's on page 166. And starting, you know, the, the two, the first two full paragraphs, starting Faulkner. Okay, um, yeah. Faulkner believed that human beings could never fully know their past, that the highest level of understanding remained fleeting and speculative. This was a profound and disturbing truth. We dimly see people performing their acts of passion and simple violence, he wrote. They were there, along with the letters from that forgotten chest, but so shadowy, he claimed, so inscrutable and serene, against that turgid background of a horrible and bloody mischancing of human affairs as to remain largely unreadable. In the coils and crucibles of memory, he wrote, we find only the cold ashes. Mischance, a mishap or misfortune. What happened that day in the barn was certainly a mischance. It wasn't bloody, but it was horrible. Though Jolene and I continued to be friends, something changed between us after that experience in the barn. I could not rid myself of Marie's words, something's wrong with that girl. We returned to our normal lives with our friendship slightly altered, so slightly that it was easy to pretend nothing was really different. Anything I might say about it after all these years would certainly remain fleeting and speculative, as Faulkner suggested. But I cannot help thinking that Jolene began to separate herself from me at that moment because she understood that I had seen her at her most defeated when the aggregate of herself had been pulled apart by a rustic old farm woman and she'd been left exposed to some truth she couldn't bear. What was that truth? I don't know. I wouldn't pretend to say but I believe no one had ever made her feel so vulnerable before or so seen. Oh, just so powerful. And, you know, here is this moment of greatest humiliation and of being seen, sort of the worst part of oneself. And then by the end of this novel, that's one part of Jolene, but we see the whole of Jolene. And we see, too, the whole of Verna. And that's Verna's gift, you know, as the narrator of this story, that she does make that pilgrimage home, not just to her family origins or, or even the landscape, um, but home to that, that, you know, the body is home, friendships and marriage are home, that real wholeness. Yes, I feel in some way she comes home to herself as a whole person who is about to be reduced to nothingness. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, it was a, a kind of a, a gift. Um, when I had finished the book, this was one of the few books that I've never, I haven't gotten an advance for. I just wrote it. I just wanted to see what kind of book I wanted to write. And when I turned it in to my wonderful editor, Dan Frank at Pantheon, who I had been with for many years, who I'd done five books with, and who ended up tragically passing away um, just after he had edited the book, um, he was deeply affected by 
MacArthur Park and the story and um, immediately made an offer. But the first thing he said to me is, where did Jolene come from? You know, where did you, how did you, I'm amazed that you could pull her out of you, he said. Well, that was really the operative words to pull her out of me. Because at some point during the writing of this book, I realized I had split myself in half. And I was having a very deep conversation with the two parts of myself, represented by Verna, the woman who had been raised in the faith to be a kind and accommodating woman, and the woman who had been raised outside of the faith by wildly partying, alcoholic, uh, 'er ne'er-do-well, filthy rich parents who could afford to send her off to Bryn Mawr and who then became, you know, a very well-known artist. That, That prickly part of myself and that part of myself that wanted to, uh, when I was young, uh, take my clothes off and explore uh, every part of being female, who was a little rebel, who then didn't become an artist, but did become a writer. And that other part that was still lodged, as you pointed out early on, within the story of the family, the story of the faith, and the story of the place. And in that conversation that I began to have between Jolene and Verna, I, I realized at some point that I was seeking a kind of peace and resolution within my own experience of life up to this point to kind of bring those two halves of myself into harmony. It is, oh, that's so, you know, that rings so absolutely true to me. And, and it is the friendship with the self. Yes. You know, with the whole self. You know, you mentioned you, uh, Ursula Le Guin earlier, who was uh, um, another thing that uh, we have, in, we share in our friendship. She was a friend to both of us, and you knew her better than I. But um, she told a biographer one time that she had a gift for home life, and she did. I was actually neighbors with Ursula in uh, um, in Portland, and that's when we got how we got to know each other, and, and through our mutual love of cats and of writing and of, of food and other things. But I think you know she she did have a gift for home life. She loved the home. She wrote all her books at the kitchen table with her kids crawling all over her. And you know when I when I read that um, and I ran across that uh, quotation when she died and I was reading all the tributes to her and I was writing one myself. But I immediately thought when I read that, that she said, I have a gift for home life. And I immediately thought of you and I thought, and I thought, you know, and your gift is for friendship. Hmm. Thank you, Teresa. I, I feel like when most of us make a list of the, you know, if we were to make a list of our goals in life, very few of us would put on that list uh, that we want to have great, successful, and intimate friendships. We would talk about probably a, a love relationship or success or good health or children and family. But I don't think the first thing that leaps to mind is that 
we want to have deep and successful friendships. And in order to do that, of course, it requires real nurturing and also selectivity. Not every, not, not every friend when we reach the age of 65, 70, whatever, can we say we wish to have that deep, intimate friendship. <laughs> and I think time becomes, you know, of the essence in a way in nurturing those friendships for what they give us. And um, I've come to that realization, and I think MacArthur Park came out of that realization, that sometimes we accept unacceptable behavior and forgive in order to maintain these friendships that are terribly important. It's what I've asked of other people at times I know, and it's what people have asked of me. Insight is produced by myself and Ben Kilborn. Our theme music is by The Observatory. Insight is supported by the Town of Springdale, the Division of Utah Arts and Museums, the O.C. Tanner and Eccles Foundations. We thank you all for your faith and funding. I'm Logan Hebner for the Zion Canyon Mesa Arts and Humanities Residency. This has been Insight. Thank you for your time. Stay tuned and stay safe.